Today on Government Matters, the Secretary of Veterans Affairs fires his number two. The chairman of the House Veterans Affairs Committee tells you what he thinks comes next. The Navy's new plan to build its civilian workforce. The Navy's manpower leader reviews the five anchors of the program. And cutting waste, fraud and abuse with data and artificial intelligence. The IT leader at one of the largest inspector general offices in government tells you how. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The number two official at the Department of Veterans Affairs is out this week. VA Secretary Robert Wilkie says he fired Deputy Secretary James Byrne because of a, quote, loss of confidence. Congressman Mark DeCano is the chairman of the House Veterans Affairs Committee. Mr. Chairman, welcome back. Thank you for coming on the program. I'm glad to be back. Um, tell me what this says to you about any concerns that you have overall about the leadership structure at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Well, uh, I'm concerned about the changeover that we've had over the past three years. We've gone through at least three different secretaries, one an acting secretary, and we have a confirmation process that's also in the Senate that's very cumbersome. Mm -hmm. And this administration has relied a lot on acting uh, secretaries, acting undersecretaries, and I'm not relishing uh, a vacancy. Uh, and so I have concerns. And so I've asked the secretary to explain his reasons for firing uh, a Deputy Secretary Byrne and uh, we'll leave it at that. Well, you are looking at this, at the, at, and the entire Congress is looking at this at a period of time in which it's likely that leaders, political appointees, are likely to leave the administration end of the first term, yes. potential beginning of a second term, or of a new administration, a, a Democratic administration. Does that make this concern even more uh, heightened in your view? Uh, it's always been there for me. I've, uh, I've been on uh, the committee, uh, the Veterans Affairs Committee, uh, since I arrived in Congress in 2013. Uh, I'm in my eighth year of Congress, and I can tell you that the instability at the top leadership, regardless of administration, is harmful for veterans, it's harmful to the department. It's hard to push through changes that we need to make when you have leaders that uh, have a tenure that only exists for, at most, two or three years. And, uh, and, and that goes for the top leadership as well. You need people that can execute uh, decisions. Two of the priorities that Secretary Wilkie set when he came in were curbing veteran suicide and improving veterans' mental health. You have two pieces of legislation that you're working on now to address each of those issues. Tell me about those, how they work together, and how you would like to see VA execute them if they become. Well, what we've enunciated is our seven goals of the committee uh, for suicide prevention. Uh, they're evidence-based goals. Uh, I won't go all over all seven of them and list them for you now, but I would say you could group two of the goals uh, that have to do with um, addressing immediate needs of veterans in crisis. So the other five goals are about how do we address upstream interventions so that we prevent veterans from getting into a crisis in the first place. But there's no doubt that we need to get better at addressing veterans' needs uh, who are in crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, of the 20 veterans who commit suicide a day, six of them are connected to the VA. My concern is making sure that uh, whatever, whoever, whatever veteran arrives um, at a VA facility uh, that has an inpatient mental health unit, 
uh, that those units uh, uh, meet very rigorous standards that uh, the staff uh, is adequately, they're adequately staffed, that there's someone that can check on that veteran every 15 minutes, uh, that, uh, that they're adequately equipped, that there's cameras installed, and that, uh, that there's sufficient staffing so that they can be, uh, that they're sufficiently trained, mm -hmm. they know what to do. Um, uh, the IG reports on the Minnesota facility and the West Palm Beach revealed preventable suicides. And from my point of view, there should be zero suicides uh, at, at VA medical centers that have inpatient mental health clinics, uh, mental health uh, units. I've called for a nationwide stand down. Uh, when the West Palm Beach VA IG report came out, that stand down call was, was ignored uh, by the secretary, and I, I thought that was not a great idea. But what I'm excited to tell you about is the Access Act, which I have introduced. Now, the Access Act uh, addresses the issue of veterans in crisis uh, who uh, may have a discharge status that uh, may not make them eligible for current mental health care. Uh, they may live in a region of the country where access to mental health care uh, is very um, difficult. Uh, they may be a guardsman or a, or a reservist who currently do not have very clear access to mental health care, and three out of the 20 suicides are guardsmen and service members, many of whom have never deployed. Mm -hmm. And we could get into that topic at another time, yes. but, but here's the thing. Under my bill, any veteran, regardless of discharge status, regardless of whether they're a guardsman or a, or a reservist, regardless of whether they live in a rural area, can call up the Veterans Crisis Line, get pre-approved for care, get the care that they need, and not worry about a bill. Uh, the VFW testified uh, last year about a case of a veteran that uh, had severe mental health issues, went to seek care, and the VA gave him a $20,000 bill. I don't want any veteran or a family member to have to worry about calling that veteran's crisis line and have any, have any ambiguity uh, about whether or not they're going to get the care that they need. I think anyone who's worn the uniform of our country um, if they're having a mental crisis, mental health care crisis, uh, I, want them to go to, I want them to go to the VCL, the Veterans Crisis Line, I know that they're not going to get charged uh, for getting uh, mental health care. So this is about addressing, these two measures uh, um, are about addressing uh, immediate care of veterans in crisis. We have the hotline number, we're going to put, up, put it up on the screen in a moment, Mr. Chairman. We have about 30 seconds okay. left. What does the pro what's your prognosis on these bills? Is this something that you've developed in conjunction with your Republican colleagues that you're confident will have a good chance I've to had, pass the I've Senate had, too? I've had uh, positive discussions both with uh, the executive in charge, Dr. Stone, and uh, uh, my ranking member. Uh, it's a we'll see. We still want to work on the upstream uh, 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 efforts uh, to coordinate existing social service organizations to address uh, prevention, uh, helping veterans uh, get access to uh, um, all uh, an array of services which will help prevent them, will help them address the stressors which lead to, uh, which lead to suicidal crises. Chairman Takano, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure morning. for joining you. Thank you. Up next, the Navy's not just building up its fleet, it's building up its force, too. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the new Navy human capital strategy and how the Navy will execute. You're watching ABC7.
Welcome back. The Navy has a new civilian capital strategy it plans to use to recruit and retain the next generation of its workforce. The branch has identified five anchors it believes will help create a future-ready workforce by 2030. Greg Slavonic is Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Manpower and Reserve Affairs. Mr. Secretary, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Why did the Navy think that it needs a new civilian human capital strategy? Well, when you look at the workplace, you look at what the Navy is trying to achieve, uh, you know, we're more technological based organization and we need to make sure we have the right people in the right seat at the right time to be able to execute this mission along with our uniform folks. Uh, five anchors, I see what you did there by the way, five anchors uh, in this focus. Access and curate the best in, uh, best in class talent, develop skills for the future, harness the power of data, strengthen the bench of future talent, and enable a technology augmented workforce. How did you decide that those were the five things around which you wanted to build the strategy? Well, when, we, when I came on board, I put the team together and we talked about it. I've been in the job 18 months, and so we have that a very strong uh, civilian workforce that works for me. So we wanted to talk about how do we move forward, what do we need, and uh, it was determined that we need to improve uh, our, our civilian workforce. We need to get. We're in a competition for manpower just like the uniform side is so we're having to go out there and make sure we get the best and brightest uh, this is a, a t one team one fight uh, the uniform works right alongside the civilians and so we need to make sure we had those skill sets that that support what they do. This 2019 to 2030 civilian human capital strategy explicitly states that the Navy understands it can't compete on pay with the private sector. And so you're undertaking efforts among all of these five anchors to try to balance that as much as you can. What's the underlying theme of where you see that balance, Admiral? We need to make sure that uh, colleges and universities, the civilian sector understand what we do. I think we offer opportunities that other, the corporate or that uh, the outside, the civilian workforce, private industry can't. And then we've got to, we can't pay them what we, uh, what they can. So we need to create opportunities that allow us to compete for that group. Uh, I was out in California recently, talked to a young man, graduate from MIT. Uh, I said, why did you come to work for the Navy? Because, you know, you're a graduate from a very prestigious university. He told me that they, they, the Navy, allow him to work on projects that and have experience that he could not have gotten in the civilian sector. That has been the selling point for recruiters in uniform historically. Right. You'll do things in the service that you would never be able to do in the private sector, and you'll do them faster, you'll do them sooner in your career than you ever would have been. Then you have this wonderful mission on top of it. It sounds like that's the same approach that you're taking here with not, the civilian side. Yeah, and not uh, we have civilians that never served and we'll never have an opportunity to wear the uniform, mm -hmm. but they are as important as the uniform side. So it's one team, one fight, and I'm just trying to bring back the emphasis to the civilian workforce and make sure the uniform side understands their importance because they work side by side. You, uh, you said there will be pilot programs here when you rolled this out. Tell me about the pilot programs, how you're going to assess their success and decide whether they need to be altered, scaled, what, whatever the next step is after the pilot. So the first pilot program is going to roll out mid-February, so we're almost at that, that start date, and it's going to be about hiring. Mm -hmm. One of the real challenges we have within the military now is being able to bring people on board as quickly as we need them. Uh, we need to be agile, we need to f be fast, and we need to get those folks in the seat. That has been a challenge for us, uh, not only the Navy, 
but across DOD. So we are wanting to make sure that we are able to execute and bring folks on board and get them in the seat and get them trained up so they can be right there working alongside their uniform counterparts. That's a DOD-wide challenge. It's a government-wide challenge. Do you have hiring authorities at the Navy or will you seek hiring authorities at the Navy that maybe you didn't have before that other organizations don't to be able to do that? Or are you just gonna try to work within the existing structure and speed it up? So as you know, uh, uh, the NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act, uh, allowed us several authorities, 20 plus. Uh, so we need to execute each of those hiring authorities to make sure that we don't lose them. Mm -hmm. And so we are trying our best to make sure that we follow the guidance that's been provided to us and, and utilize those uh, hiring processes that are there for us. What's your timeline look like on some of the other pilots that you're rolling out and how you'll look back on the hiring pilot and the others to decide, yes, this is working the way that we would like it to, or no, we're going to change up and, and move in a different direction? So once we've started our first one, which is the pilot program, we'll have it over a period of time, we'll evaluate it, we'll look at our metrics, we, we'll see how successful uh, we were, what the pitfalls were, and then starting to implement if in fact we feel there are areas within the, the, the pilot program that are executable, then we'll go down that path and, and start to implement those. And then we'll move on to the next one. And we've got several uh, that were outlined and ready to go, but uh, we've got to help still shape and form those uh, to get them ready for a showtime. Do you have a sense of when you can look at all five of these anchors holistically and decide we've been successful or we are currently being successful. We're on the right track and we want to continue or will that just play out over time as each of these pilot programs launches? These anchors are the tenets that we're going to go with and they're going to get us into 2030, 2035. So we want to make sure the foundation is established, that we're on solid ground, solid footing and then at that point to get to where we need to be to get to the president's 355 ship Navy, we need to have the personnel that has the technology background and skills to help us get to where we need to go along with the uniform side. And, you know, making sure our sailors, our Marines, and our civilians are all pulling at the same end of the rope as we go down that path. Admiral, Mr. Secretary, thanks very much for coming. Okay, great to thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Up next, using artificial intelligence to fight waste, fraud, and abuse. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how one Inspector General office is using the new technology. You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. Inspector General offices across government are leveraging the power of data and new data analytics tools to see things they couldn't see before. Artificial intelligence is one of those tools. One of the leaders in the merger of AI and data is the IG at the Department of Health and Human Services. Chris Chilbert is the Chief Information Officer at HHS's Office of Inspector General. Chris, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Thank you very much. What's your vision for what artificial intelligence looks like and how it's used inside an IG office, yours in particular? Right. So we've been using uh, predictive analytics for several years. And what we found is that uh, that has, has allowed us to put data in the hands of our investigators, our auditors, our attorneys to help them do their jobs better. Mm -hmm. And what artificial intelligence is doing is allowing us to refine those models to better target that data and make sure that they can take uh, actions from using it. 
what's the connective tissue between predictive analytics and the artificial intelligence technology that you're using? Sure, so in healthcare, as you might imagine, there's a lot of data that comes from a lot of different sources. Mm -hmm. So to be able to make sense of that data, we have to create models uh, using the expertise, not only of our people, but also uh, look at what's happened in the past and then uh, create models that we can, we, it's called training the data, right? So we use what's called a supervised model. You, uh, you uh, uh, feed data to it, you run an analyst, uh, analytics against it and then you see what happens and uh, see if they can uh, provide some value to help in a court case. How did you refine the analytics, the, the process, to understand this is a tool that would be useful for us, maybe there are tools that you decided weren't useful for you, right. that kind of thing. Because I imagine there are a lot of IG offices in particular that are just starting to go down this path. Yeah, so there's there's three things that we look at when we try to test out new tools. So the first is we ask the question, is this valuable, right? And you have to define what is value. And the second thing is you have to ask, is it feasible, right? So there's a lot of great tools out there, but it may or may not be feasible given your current infrastructure. Uh, and then the last thing, is it viable? Is this something that, that would be great, but we can't afford over mm -hmm. the long term, right? So, so you're asking those three questions and you're, you're, at a, you're specifically testing that, right? So that's what we do. And the answers to those questions will be different for every organization, right? Absolutely, and as a matter of fact, and you're, ask, and you're asking those questions at different uh, stages along the process. Mm -hmm. I mean, the very first thing you're trying to do is to find a problem and see, hey, can this uh, artificial intelligence help us solve that problem? How are you using these tools to see things that you couldn't see at all before, and how are you using these tools to see things that were there, but maybe you didn't see as much of, or didn't see as quickly, that mm -hmm. kind of thing? Well, I'll give you a great example. So we have, uh, HHS is the largest grant-making entity in the federal government, and any entity that receives a grant from HHS has to undergo what's called an audit. Mm -hmm. And so what we have to do, though, is make sense of the data in those audits, and that's millions and millions of pages. What we did is we created a data hub where we've pulled together eight different uh, data sources that, that comprises those millions of pages of data. It used to take our auditors months and months of work to go through there to pull out different findings. Uh, with artificial intelligence, we've been able now to, to reduce this months of work down to seconds mm -hmm. so they can get right to uh, doing the work that they need to do. So you're seeing a capacity surge too because Absolutely. once that work is done, your team can move on to other work that maybe they would have never gotten to in addition to being able to do the work that they're producing uh, better. Yeah, and, and, and they, they make findings that they would not have seen otherwise. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the potential here? I, I asked an AI expert in industry not long ago whether what inning we were in in a baseball game, he said, you're thinking about it wrong. Mm -hmm. This is not something that will probably end the way a sporting event ends. Do you right. see it that way too? Yes, we, we are, one of our, our key uh, tenets is continuous improvement, mm -hmm. right? So we are, we start small, we define a problem, we see can, can we add value by trying uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning and other, other tools, and we continue to build out a toolbox. And the back end, we're also asking when tools, do the tools continue to provide value? If they, if they don't, then we'll get rid of them. But we're just, we're continuing to add uh, more and more tools to that toolbox and then refine uh, how they work. So does that mean that those three questions, uh, valuable, feasible, viable, mm -hmm. do you ask those about a, the same tool on an ongoing basis absolutely. to make sure it continues to, to be all those things? Uh, absolutely, right? If, it's, if it stops providing value, there's no reason to keep investing in it. Mm -hmm. How do you determine that? How do you decide something 
something you've used so far is something you want to keep using, or maybe it's something you no longer continue to use. Well, that's that's where that's where we, you have to test it, right? Mm -hmm. So we make assumptions, and that's one of the things I think sometimes can be a weakness when uh, when people try to start something out. They start something, and they say, "Well, let's just see what happens." So what we try to do is to find a problem up front. And we want to solve that problem. And is, is it going to continue to provide value? And then we're continuously coming up with new ideas. Our, our, our folks that are across the country that are in the field, they always have new ideas. And so we, if we think it's something that we can test, we'll test it. If it provides value, then again, it goes to those other two questions. Is it, is it feasible? Is it viable? Given that this is an evolutionary process then, do you expect to be able to do things two years from now or five years from now that you can't do today, but maybe you can see over the horizon? Yeah, so I think that we're always looking for, one, one, it's adding more data sets, right? So a couple of years ago, we were able to move our infrastructure to be mostly cloud-based, and that has enabled us to bring, an, bring data that we never would have had uh, the ability to bring uh, together before. Uh, we've got a great team that is constantly, you know, the machine's learning, but also our people are learning. We better understand how to, um, to, to, to use machine learning and how to use artificial intelligence. We understand how to present that data better, and so it's, this is something that I think that we'll be using for a long time in the future. About 30 seconds left. What do you see as the number one thing that IG offices will be able to accomplish in the future that they can't today because of this technology? They, they will be able to uh, get more, uh, do more work with the same same amount of people in the future. Chris, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you Thanks here. for having me here. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.